I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And before we start today's show, I want to give a heartfelt appreciation to Nicandro Iannacci, our spectacular web content strategist who's produced this podcast essentially since I came to the Constitution Center in 2013. He has built it from a bathtub operation where we had people calling in on landlines and it sounded like it was uh, recorded in the 1930s (laughs) into the wonderful show that you all listened to today. And uh, all of us at the Constitution Center are so proud that Nicandro will be starting Columbia Law School in the fall, uh, and also that he'll continue to work with the We the People podcast from New York. We're also thrilled that he will be succeeded here in Philadelphia by Ugana Eze, who will be working with the podcast to keep up the great conversations that we all know and love. But I wanted to say, Nicandro, thank you so much for your spectacular work. And I wanted to ask you, what were you trying to achieve when you worked to build the We the People podcast? Well, first, thank you, Jeff, for being so kind. Uh, I'm really moved by uh, those words. And uh, I have to say, working on the podcast has been maybe the best thing I've done here and the most fun and most engaging. Uh, and I'm you know, sad to be relinquishing mostly <laughs> my leadership of the product, but I look forward to, to listening and working with you guys. Um, I would say the goal in my mind was twofold. One is to, and we've we've talked about this offline, to build a constituency for something that doesn't have one right now, and that is civil, sophisticated, nonpartisan, bipartisan debate. Um, it seems like today there's 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 no hunger for that. That we're we're all in our camps. These are these are things we're all reading about. We we know this line of thought, and I think the Constitution Center is uniquely positioned to provide that kind of conversation. And we've tried to do that. We've we've tried to bring together what we saw as the 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 most the best arguments and the the most important arguments in the most important debates. And I hope listeners have appreciated that. I would also say, um, and I feel like I've really grown in this regard, that we're trying to encourage people to be fearlessly engaged in intellectual debate, um, not to fear being challenged by the other side and to be open to being moved uh, along the spectrum, to, to having your views evolve in response to persuasive arguments. One thing that struck me from so many episodes our, our speakers, we just had one on the 17th Amendment conversation uh, last week where one of the guests says either either to you, the listeners on air or off air will say, yeah, you know, so and so just had a great argument. The evidence is just very persuasive or or even I'm not exactly sure. You know, I think this is the best argument or this is the best conclusion. But my opponent also has a reasonable position and you know and that's that's great this is this is america basically so um and i feel like too um and i've I've said this to you as well um i feel like i have become less patient with my own side at times i think i've become more open and more interested in the other side and i'm really grateful for that and i think that habit of mind 
will serve me well in law school and beyond. Less patient about your own side. What a beautiful way to put it. And that is exactly what we're trying to achieve with this podcast. And you've been so central in making that possible. You've been engaging with our listeners and have just conducted a really interesting survey of nearly 100 listeners. And you've gotten some great feedback about what people are responding to. Uh, Tell us about some of what you've learned. Yes. So uh, listeners might recall that uh, twice last year, actually, we conducted surveys of mostly the same questions asking you about uh, all all kinds of aspects of the podcast. So Jeff's hosting, uh, selection of topics and guests, um, the format of episodes. We asked you about uh, ideas that you might like to see us try going forward. We asked you how you found out about us, all kinds of things. Um, We have been listening. We've been uh, trolling through this data. We've reached some interesting conclusions. I'll just share a few things with you. Um, Generally speaking, uh, I think uh, everyone is excited. People are interested um, and are really happy with the show. Uh, There have been some concerns expressed about the quality of audio on on some episodes. Uh, Believe me, we have noticed that. We are taking concrete steps to improve that. Uh, and hopefully you'll see those changes rolled out this fall. So we're very excited about that. Uh, there's also been a lot of interest in some new kinds of formats and and projects. So one that we are specifically going to test is doing some episodes around American history, topics in American history, constitutionally focused, of course. Uh, but you'll likely see that um, as an extra episode or maybe one episode a month. We're still figuring out how that's going to work, but you'll see more of that consciously built into the into the schedule, less necessarily trying to respond immediately to things, although we'll continue to do that. We know that's important, uh, but we'll try and take the longer view uh, going backwards um, and do more of that work, um, as well as some other possible projects that are, we're still batting around. So look out for just more more variety and just even more dynamic podcast coming 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 up. Wonderful. Um, Finally, uh, for me, the podcasts are uh, among the most important thing the Constitution Center does because it connects our incredibly important mission of promoting constitutional education and debate to people around the country who then respond and are educated. And it was a kind of let's put on a show in a garage enterprise where we had this vision. Truly. The two of us and our great team, uh, uh, some sitting with us and and here at the Constitution Center, uh, just started hosting these constitutional debates and built an audience from the low 10,000s to now more than uh, 100,000 listeners a month and and, and sometimes more. Uh, So so what um, surprised you most about this growth? And do you have a favorite episode? Oh, wow. Uh, I think I have an answer to the second part of that. I would say the most surprising generally is how often people agree. Um, We see that very clearly on the Interactive Constitution, which I'm sure listeners have read uh, front to back. And if you haven't, you should. But I think we're, we're so often we are trying to bring out strong debates. We are trying to bring out clashing visions. But What's really inspiring about this project is that very often we find that there is agreement on 90%, 95% of the law, of the Constitution, of what, what history has tells us, what it has shown us. And 
I, that obviously, I, I think to a lot of people is something surprising to discover. And again, it's something that we can we can communicate with with some authority, I think, and um, and and trust in a way that other partisan organizations and outlets can't do and, and are, don't have an interest in doing. And I think that is our job is to, to do that. And so I just think that the, I've been surprised by how civil folks are, how much they agree, how willing they are to do this, to, to communicate with the public and serve the public. Um, and I just think that's a great thing and hope to do that myself. Um, I would say my favorite episodes, uh, I'll give a shout out to two of our guests who we've had on several times, Michael Dorff and Ilya Shapiro, who have You've heard listeners probably often talking about the court um, or just something current in the news. I believe they were some of the first guests we had on after the election in the fall. They were among the first episodes we had. Uh, Right after the election, we also had Dahlia Lithwick and Jonathan Adler on to talk about the future of the court. And I think both of those conversations really highlighted how all four of those folks are just top-notch court watchers, just extremely intelligent. and, and especially um, Mike Dorff and Ilya Shapiro, um, and like uh, several of our guests, are, have been so good to the, to the center and to the podcast. And hopefully you'll keep hearing them and other great new folks. We're always trying to build our network. So we'll keep, keep expanding and inviting the most interesting people on the given topic. Thank you so much, Nicandro Iannacci, <laughs> as we like to say at the end of the podcast, for your passion your vision, your energy, and your willingness with a dime and a dream to just help create this unique educational product that is a meaningful part of the lifelong education of tens of thousands of people across America. And I know that I learn from it every week. Nicandro, thanks so much and very glad that you'll remain involved with We the People. Thank you, Jeff. On today's show, we feature a conversation with John Avlon, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast about his great new book, Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. This program, moderated by the National Constitution Center's scholar-in-residence Michael Gerhardt, is part of America's Town Hall, our ongoing series of conversations and debates about the Constitution held here in Philadelphia and around the country. You can browse all of our past programs and see what's coming next at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate. Let's get started. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, It is wonderful to be back at at the National Constitution Center where I, um, I'm Mike Gearhart. I have the great honor of being the scholar in residence, which means I get to do fun stuff like this um, and come back to a city I've grown to love and to an institution, the National Constitution Center, which I've learned to uh, really revere. Uh, It's a national treasure. Uh, And before I get into any further details about today's wonderful program, I just want to cover some upcoming events and other logistics, which I hope will be of interest. Uh, next week, we're going to continue Great Presidents, um, and we're going to be talking about Lincoln uh, next Wednesday. I'm going to be talking to Sidney Blumenthal, who has a book coming out about, a series of books actually coming out about Abraham Lincoln. We're going to talk about that. And in July, we're going to be in partnership with the Anti-Defamation League and hold our annual Supreme Court Review which will include Slate's Dahlia Lithwick and Erwin Chemerinsky, the new dean at Berkeley Law School. And we'll also host an intimate conversation with leading constitutional theorist Owen Fiss on 13 lawyers who have shaped the legal world. 
visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate for tickets. And I also want to remind you about membership. If you're all not already, already a member of the National Constitution Center, please visit the membership table today in the Kirby lobby after the program to learn more about the benefits of membership, which include free and discounted admission to our popular daytime and evening events. And now, of course, on today's event. We are enormously fortunate today to have as our guest John Avalon, who is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast and a CNN political analyst. And he is here today to discuss his new book, which is entitled Washington's Farewell, The Founding Fathers' Warning to Future Generations, which has been already been praised as a fantastic contribution to our national literature. And John will be with us afterwards for a book sale and signing of his book uh, directly following our program. So please join me today in welcoming our wonderful guest, John Ablin. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to be here. Well, it is a great thing to be talking about George Washington. It's always a great thing to be talking about Never George Never a bad Washington. time to talk about George. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, which in itself tells us a lot. So uh, John, how did you get interested in the project and why, should, why is it of interest today to be thinking of Washington's farewell address? I imagine if the first founding father, George Washington, sat down with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and wrote a memo to future generations, to us, specifically about the forces he feared could destroy our democratic republic, rooted in the lessons of his life and his understanding of history. He did. That's the farewell address. And he wrote it just a block from here in what was then the Philadelphia Executive Mansion on the corner of what is now Market and Sixth Street. And he wrote it over a period of years as the autobiography of his ideas. And it really was the sum total of his hard-won wisdom, drawing on all the aspects of his life as a soldier, as a surveyor, as a farmer, as a statesman. And Washington doesn't always get the respect he deserves as a thinker, as a, as a man of great wisdom. And he wasn't the most brilliant of the founding fathers. Um, he wasn't you know, a, a shining wit. He was enormously insecure about his own capacities to serve as president, as opposed to the great confidence he felt in himself as a, as a general, as a farmer. But he really did cultivate his character consciously in an attempt to create the national character. And the farewell address is an enormous gift and it was understood as such for a long time. It was more widely reprinted than the Declaration of Independence for the first 150 years of our republic. It was that foundational. It was consulted by presidents and statesmen at pivotal moments in our history as a lens through which to judge and guide their own decisions. And so the fact that it fell out of favor and is now almost forgotten is itself a great opportunity for us to rediscover it at a pretty pivotal moment when I think a lot of folks are thinking about America as a civilization perhaps for the first time, and trying to understand these larger forces of history that we sometimes recklessly play with, uh, and to understand it as part of our birthright. This whole center is devoted to that. The city is devoted to that. But to recognizing that we, the people, have responsibilities as citizens to understand our history, to apply that to the present so that we can pass it on to the future. That farewell address is an inspiring document that consciously aspires to do just that. It is durable wisdom. And that's why it was such an honor to, to write the book and to have it get such a great reception. Well, we're going to get into the, the, the real substance of the address in a moment. 
I want to put it into some context first. Um, and maybe a good place to begin doing that is with recognizing that this isn't the first farewell address he gave. Uh, giving farewell addresses was something Washington won't say he liked to do, but it's something he had thought about before. Yeah, he, he had a genius for goodbyes. <laughs> um, he, he understood, um, and I think it, it, it's a measure of both his innate modesty, which was not affected, um, and his understanding of politics, that, that he knew that absence could be a higher form of presence. He knew that the, the person who was being pursued is always more desirable than the person doing the pursuing. And, um, and Washington's first farewell address um, was when he resigned his commission as commander of the Continental Army. And you gotta understand that in a life full of firsts, this was really uh, the first decisive moment, and it was famous in its time. George III in England allegedly said, when being confronted with the fact that Washington was about to resign his commission and go into private life like Cincinnati, he allegedly said, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. Because that was not the pattern. The pattern that history had provided over and over again is that the young rebellious leader would rise up against a tyrant, would topple the king, and then become a tyrant himself. That was the pattern of history, almost sort of written into fairy tale. And George Washington consciously, and, and, and against the advice of a lot of folks during that enormous discord after winning the war, when there's, a, there's an attempted coup, a mutiny of his officers, people are trying to get him to take control and become the new king, he decisively steps off the stage. But when he does that, he's stationed in Newburgh, New York. There's a fascinating hamlet on the Hudson River near West Point. And uh, his headquarters at the end of the Revolutionary War still stand. They were among America's first historic, uh, historically designated spaces. And the town itself has fallen into disrepair, but it has a wonderful history. And I recommend everyone visit it. It's the kind of place we need to revive and rebuild. Washington writes in that space, in this little squat stone house, his farewell address to the nation. And he doesn't do it near as we can tell with any ghostwriters. He cut his own quills. Uh, he, he was a voluminous writer of letters. And he writes a farewell address in a format called the Circular Letter to the States. And basically that was a letter that was going to be sent to the state legislatures of each state and it would be disseminated organically that way. And he says, look, you all as citizens of this new republic may be celebrating and that's great. But this is a time of great peril, a time of crisis, because now it falls to us to show that we can govern ourselves. And every other nation in the world is waiting for us to fail, all the old colonial powers. And if we have all the advantages of geography, and he spoke a lot about geography as a soldier and a farmer often does, um, about our great advantage of being separated by an ocean from the turmoils of Europe. Um, about being blessed by a beautiful soil and climate, um, but that it was going to be up to us to hang together. Because remember, another bit of inherited wisdom was that no democracy could exist on a scale such as ours. Writers like Montesquieu and other folks had said that maybe democracy could exist in a Swiss canton, but never 13 colonies along such a long period of, of land. And this was therefore a responsibility that American citizens had and their representatives to show that we could succeed as a republic. And to do that, we had to find a sense of common purpose to focus on national unity. Already, Washington knew that the Continental Congress had been almost hopelessly divided. They couldn't get their act together with regard to funding the Continental Army or find any sense of common purpose. Um, 
they needed to really focus on the responsibilities of a civic people to be invested in the success of society and use education and religion as a way of binding the nation together. He said, talked about the importance of paying your debts, whether it was for, on the federal level, the state level, or crucially at that time to the soldiers and the pensioners, because that was a great source of pain that was leading to a sense of decession. So already you saw Washington laying out markers, a commitment to national unity, a focus on building national character, an idea that education and religion could help that, a sense that paying down debts was important and also containing what we would call hyperpartisanship and they called faction. All that core wisdom was there in Washington. He also recommended strongly that we have an independent executive, uh, which they didn't listen to during the Articles of Confederation and then would, of course, eventually become Washington's uh, to, to enact that recommendation. But then he left the stage. And that first farewell was called his farewell for a long time. That was almost as famous as, as, famous as his farewell address, um, but it predated his presidency. And, and that was a crucially important document uh, that it itself was largely forgotten, but it establishes crucially that the farewell address are Washington's ideas. These are not, you know, Hamilton ghostwriting something that Washington sets his name to, as many of the partisan critics claimed at the time. That Washington was a man of deep ideas rooted in experience and his understanding of history. And, and, and you get that continuity clearly from his first farewell. And of course, once he's become president, and this is discussed in this wonderful book, by the way, um, uh, which I, I wish we could go through page by page, but we're not, we're not quite going to be able to do that. But once he gets, in a sense, brought back onto the stage, he understands something he's got to do as president, um, which you talk about a lot in your book, and that is set a series of precedents. Yeah. Um, and so this farewell address itself will become a precedent. And before we get to that, what are some of the other precedents he's trying to set as he moves through the first and second term? What, what's, what's so fascinating is to do that close focus at the early days of the government. Because when you think about it, as carefully written as the Constitution was, as much of a masterpiece of principled compromise as it was and is, um, and, and, and why places like this are invaluable to our civic education, it's essentially a framework. What you fill it with was largely up to the president and the Congress to create those precedents. And, and, and the first Congress in lower Manhattan, uh, and, and I'm proudly you know, from New York City with a, 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 a joint uh, dual citizenship with Charleston, South Carolina at times. Um, <laughs> but in those cramped city streets where there is not the kind of markers of history as exist in Philadelphia, because New York is a place that reinvents itself so assiduously. You had the first Congress take place in Federal Hall. Um, that building sadly no longer exists. And they're making it up essentially as they go along. They're debating how much the president should be considered a king. John Adams unwisely considers, you know, considers an elevated title. Um, they're, they're, you know, the city of New York kind of ponies up to, to spruce up their city hall to make it appropriate for a Congress. The Congressional Library, I think fascinatingly, the most popular book at the Congressional Library in that first Congress is Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons. So, which shows how much the precedent of ancient Greek and Roman history was on their minds. They were consciously, both in the writing of the Constitution and in trying to set up those precedents, trying to learn the lessons of history so they didn't follow the path of all the failed republics before them. Remember, John Adams says, there hasn't yet been a democracy that didn't commit suicide. <laughs> so all this is very much in their minds. And there's an enormous amount of griping about the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of Congress. 
an enormous amount of frustration about the partisanship and the faction creating deadlocks. They're obviously focused on supporting the Bill of Rights. But this is before their political parties, folks. And Washington himself is proudly not a member of a political party. He is an independent, as a matter of principle. Um, what's also fascinating about that first Congress without parties is this. First of all, the founders assumed that the balance of power set up would be enough of a check and balance, and that people's constituencies and personal beliefs would itself provide enough of a basis of debate, that you wouldn't need parties per se, <clears throat> as we conceive them. Um, the other thing is that even going back to the constitutional debate, it's certainly evident in those early Congresses, there's a natural cleaving into two very recognizable groups. Folks from more rural areas are tremendously concerned about the overreach of federal power. They oppose the ratification of the Constitution as a result because they felt that growth of federal power would impinge upon their freedom and their way of life. Then there are folks who favor a much stronger central government and the passage of the Constitution who tend to come from cities. And um, they, uh, that division is obviously deeply reminiscent of Democrats and Republicans today, red states, blue states. I think it belies the fact that really the divide is between urban and rural, not that the characters of the country changes when you cross state lines. Um, and I think crucially, Washington sees himself as someone who can try to bridge that divide because he recognizes that people on both sides, even though he's decidedly on the side of the stronger central government, he recognizes that both groups believe they're fighting for freedom. And, and he really does want to bridge that. He, you know, already civil war is a real possibility and Washington is trying to forestall it. He is trying to stop the growth of political parties. It puts him in enormous pain to see his most talented surrogate sons scheme to create political parties against his wishes under his nose through dueling partisan newspapers, by the way, which is a fascinating story. Um, so Washington is so conscious of the precedent. He's tight with Madison. Then Madison falls out with him when he really throws all in with Jefferson. Um, and, and, and Washington is trying to keep this little R Republican example um, and not have the office be too highfalutin, shall we say. At the same time, he's a man of enormous, um, he's very self-monitoring. He has that distance um, that he conflated with dignity of a soldier. And so that made him very unapproachable by design. And that's one of the reasons he is not as, as warmly beloved as, say, a Lincoln is today. But to, to see these folks as they were and as they saw themselves, or as close as we can get, to understand them on a human scale makes the whole thing infinitely more fascinating. When we put the Founding Fathers, particularly Washington, on a pedestal, we lose so much because we make their wisdom so much less accessible. And when we understand them as flawed people, in pain, fighting amongst themselves, uh, full of doubts as to whether they could succeed, it makes the whole exercise of reading history so much more accessible and I think much more inspiring. And of course, as he's moving through the presidency, he's overseeing crises. You've mentioned the, he's, he's, he's seeing in a sense, but can't stop it, the formation of political parties. Um, and one of the things that's happening, of course, is he's trying to get out. Yeah, he, he, he's succeeding, but at the same time, he wants to leave. And as you mentioned, even near the beginning, he's already thinking of this farewell address at the end of his first term. So what happens? Yeah, it's fascinating. He, he, he's a genuinely reluctant president, right? We are very used to that pose in politics. You know, it's the politicians always going, oh, no, 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 <laughs> You know, and, 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 and they're trying to set that up. 
Washington genuinely was a reluctant president. Um, and, and he, and the only thing Jefferson and Hamilton could agree on was at the end of his first term that as Washington retired, the nation would degenerate into civil war. We were not at a place civically strong enough to sustain the absence of a unifying figure like Washington, who of course presided over the Constitutional Convention, who presided over the military, and had a unique status as being above party, as a unifying figure. He had that authority that none of them others did. Even as we, we believe the Founding Fathers all seem like giants today, and certainly their work is, is inspired, and the alchemy of the individuals is fascinating. You know, they were seen as leaders of parties and factions at the time. Washington was not. And I think that speaks to, uh, by, by design, by the way. <clears throat> I mean, the Federalist Party really forms around Washington. He is not part of it. Um, so Washington's, uh, at the end of his first term, he's exhausted. He's frustrated. He uh, doesn't necessarily feel this job comports to his strengths. Um, he really wants to go home to Mount Vernon. God knows Martha wants him to. I mean, Martha doesn't even show up at the first inauguration. I mean, he, he makes that trip alone uh, because she's not too thrilled after having given up, you know, given him up for the time of the revolution that she's going to lose him again to politics. Um, and, but, but he really is convinced. He begins work on, on the fair, his first farewell address with James, James Madison, who it's fascinating, plays a really interesting role in the first two Congresses of the Republic, where <clears throat> he is both a leader of Congress and Washington's chief legislative and, and, and you know, lyrical aid, in effect. So he's writing congressional statements and then the president's response and vice versa. I mean, he's playing a fascinating role. Um, Washington confesses to him, and there are great contemporaneous notes by Madison at this, that he wants to retire. Madison tries to talk him out of it. Washington hears him, says, you know, I appreciate it, but I'm out of here. What's the best time? What's the best means? Madison says you should publish it in a newspaper, which he eventually does. Um, and then, basically, a number of things occur. Madison submits a draft, um, and, and the real dramas of Washington's term mostly occur in the second term. Um, and, and, and basically, Washington becomes persuaded that if he leaves, the country could degenerate into civil war. Um, he becomes very aware that Madison and Jefferson have been attacking his administration through a newspaper here in, um, uh, in, in Philadelphia, the National Gazette. Um, he feels enormously betrayed. Jefferson, of course, lies to his face when confronted about it. Uh, and when he confronts Hamilton about it, Hamilton cops to it because a little bit easier. He's defending the administration. Um, and and, and he's, he, he really just he backs off the idea, doesn't formally announce it, um, but, but the cabinet can sleep easy when he finally gives up the idea. And then he puts Madison's draft on the shelf or in his roll-top desk um, and, uh, and, and, and doesn't consult it again until really the, the spring, around February 1796. So we're going to move to that period at this point where he's now not just, uh, he's now in a position where he's not going to be persuaded to say. Yeah. He's prepared to leave. But he also perceives that there's a value in this farewell address. So um, I'm curious to know why he is so determined to, um, to uh, put this into form. And, and at the same time, consult with people whom he knows don't get along. He's consulting with Hamilton and Madison, so it's really sort of a double question to some extent. But Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think partly he is, he is consciously trying to build a document beyond faction, beyond parties. He's trying to create a document very consciously that can unite the nation. That really, if you want to distill Washington's wisdom, 
Um, he's very focused on us becoming an independent nation. It's a phrase he uses a lot. Um, it's partly how I came to the book, is that the title of my first book was Independent Nation, which I, I didn't fully appreciate that that was Washington's imprimatur. But the deeper wisdom was this, that our independence as a nation is inseparable from our interdependence as a people. That's the core wisdom, and he's entirely focused on national unity, on creating a national character, um, and, 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 and doing it through education, through religion, through policy prescriptions, and that's what he chooses to do in The Farewell. He brings together the greatest team of ghostwriters in history, right? Madison does the first draft, Hamilton does the second and plays some office politics where he can really claim the, 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 the lion's share of credit for uh, the words, not the ideas. And then he brings in John Jay at the very end. And to your point, he gets back together the band of brothers who does the Federalist Papers. John Jay had left being Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to become Governor of New York. And there's a wonderful moment, we found out sort of where Hamilton and Jay did the final edit before sending it back to Washington. It's July of 1796, uh, and, and Jay is sort of the, the elder pair of eyes. Washington really trusted Jay's advice. And he kind of, you know, he, he and Hamilton had a complicated relationship. It was a little bit father-son. They were both pretty hot-headed. They both could get angry. Um, and, uh, and, and Washington really tried to restrain his anger, much like Eisenhower. Uh, Hamilton had a harder time doing that because he felt, you know, he didn't have any advantages and he was really struggling. And, and I will say the play Hamilton, or the, you know, the musical, I hope you all have seen it, but the, the song one last time is about the composition of the farewell dress. And we'll get to that. Um, the important precedent also is this. It's not just that he sets the two-term tradition and leaves power, which, by the way, was also not a given. There was an assumption by some folks that, you know, presidents could stay in office forever. Um, that would have been perfectly logical, some kind of compromise between monarchy and a republic. He sets the two-term precedent, which then becomes part of the unwritten constitution until FDR violates it, and then we get amendment. Um, and, um, and, and crucially also, he decides to make the farewell address something that is carried on and carried forward by the power of his example. He could have easily done just a quick victory lap, a valedictory, and said, look at all the great things I've done, you know, lest nobody forget all this accomplishments, the country's stronger, more economic, economically and militarily than it was before. I'm out of here, but he doesn't do that. He specifically writes it as a warning about the forces that he believed could destroy our democratic republic. And that tradition gets carried forward in almost every major farewell address, most famously Eisenhower's farewell address, which warns up against the rise of the military-industrial complex. Even President Obama's farewell address, which quotes Washington's farewell, warns about threats to our democracy, right? But Washington was really focused on paying it forward. And that's why he took such care. He's writing and rewriting the document. And the New York Public Library has the draft. And you can see the minute, minute line edits. And, and in a former life, I was a speechwriter uh, for, for New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And so I... I I get the process and I'm fascinated by it. And you see the line edits Washington's making and they're minute and he's clearly writing because he's aware that posterity's gonna judge it. And so he wants to avoid to the best he can any misinterpretation. Um, but he's clearly writing for future generations. He's writing for us and he's writing about the big topics. They're rooted in his own experience. You see the frustrations of the French attacking him. 
uh, over the policy of neutrality. You can see all the policies that we can get into in greater depth, but he, the fact he writes the farewell address as a warning is one of his great gifts, and it's one that gets carried forward. Well, a great speech um, requires, in a sense, a great outlet, and he chooses yeah. this local paper. So how does he end up settling on the place that he does end up choosing as the place to publish it? So this is kind of fun. Um, he chooses the American Daily Advertiser, which is one of several papers on what was then High Street, what is now Market Street in Philadelphia. And basically, with, with Madison, I mean, the, the model for this, to the extent there was a model, was a European king bidding goodbye to an assembled parliament or legislature, right, or, or House of Lords. Madison suggests that he disseminates it in a newspaper because it's more little r Republican. It doesn't have monarchical trappings. He's, the president is directly addressing the American people. And there are around 100 newspapers in America at the time. And that it would disseminate organically and take some time, as it did. It took months for it to get to Vermont and Kentucky. So when Hamilton is doing the major edits and advice, and they're corresponding between New York, because Hamilton is retired from the Treasury at this point, comes down back and forth occasionally to argue cases in front of the Supreme Court which is kind of fascinating it upon itself. Um, Washington asks his advice, what newspaper? And he suggests Dunlop's uh, American Advertiser. Now, a couple problems with this. Dunlop had sold the paper. So it wasn't Dunlop's paper anymore. It was a guy named David Claypool, who'd been his assistant. Why the Daily Advertiser? Because the Federalists had a perfectly dependable, pro-administration newspaper they could have given it to. And that would have made a lot of sense, right? You know. In, in, in the broad, and, and different papers picked up the mantle at different times, but you had had places like the American Aurora, run by Benjamin Franklin's grandson, which was brutally attacking the administration, and Washington in particular, over accusations of monarchy, incompetence, et cetera. And then you had corollary papers that were brutally attacking Jefferson and Madison and, and the Democratic-Republican Party. And that would have made sense, right? Give it to a partisan newspaper that's on your side. Washington didn't want to do that because he explicitly was trying to send a message to the nation that was beyond party. And the American Daily Advertiser was uniquely committed to that more independent perspective. Now, a, a cynic would say that the reason for that is that they had a lot of congressional publishing contracts going back to the Declaration, and therefore it didn't make sense to throw in with one faction or another. Um, but I think there was a, a genuine philosophical point of view uh, that that's where they felt a paper should be that independence is key to the integrity of a news brand. We've always, the point is we've always had partisan papers. We've always also had folks who've tried to rise above the fray, who believed that that was closer to their mission as journalists. And David Claypool felt that. So Claypool, uh, Washington sends out um, to walk five blocks from the executive mansion just down the road. And all the papers are located, right, just all next to each other, and they hate each other's guts. And, he sends out his, his uh, top aide, Tobias Lear, uh, to bring a note down to David Claypool and say the president would like to meet with you. Claypool comes over, meets in the second floor of the executive mansion um, on these sort of angled uh, sofas on, on the fireplace. And incidentally, Washington always kept a framed portrait of King Louis of France on the wall even after he'd been beheaded in the French Revolution. It's this sort of rebuke to, among other things, Jefferson and Madison for falling in love with the French Revolution naively. Um, and he basically 
delivers the greatest scoop in, in American history to David Claypool. He says, I'm going to retire. I'm writing a message. I'd like you to publish it. Claypool is, of course, over the moon. And at that point, the things have been written for five years, but things go very quickly over a period of around five days. And it's roughly the ninth anniversary of the signing of the Constitution, incidentally, um, just you know, in the shadow of Independence Hall. Washington gets a draft. It's typeset. Washington makes final, very minute edits. But he's very hands-on about the edits. And he's rewritten the entire thing into his own hand, which is witnessed by his, uh, his step-granddaughter, uh, Nellie Custis. Claypool comes over with the final proof to say thank you. They decide they're going to publish it. You know, there's no like weekend edition. Uh, they're going to wait. It's an afternoon paper. I think it costs six cents. Um, Claypool returns the document, and and he expresses real reluctance to part with it. You know, maybe sort of hemming and hawing. And Washington, sort of very oddly for him, impetuously says, "Fine, you can keep it." And Washington keeps his documents meticulously at Mount Vernon. Like he knows that this matters to history. He rewrites old letters sometimes, right? That's how much, you know. Um, but he gives the original document to Claypool, who then basically sits on it, refuses to sell it, and it's believed to be lost for a long period of time. Um, but that morning, Washington leaves Philadelphia, September 19th, 1796. He leaves that morning and, and, um, with Martha and a green parrot, which belongs to Nellie Custis, to go to Mount Vernon. And that afternoon, uh, the paper hits the streets and the news explodes. It's republished in papers in Philadelphia, then New York. It passes along. And Washington, in that really just fascinating way in his diary, says almost nothing. You know, went home to Mount Vernon, <laughs> announced resignation in the American <laughs> Daily Advertiser. That's it. <laughs> well, of course, now we're here. We're at the speech itself. Yeah. Um, and um, I would ask you to get up, get, get up and deliver it, but I know that. <laughs> <laughs> going to save that uh, for later. Um, but share some of the substance with us. It has six pillars, so to speak, in it, um, which have obviously uh, withstood the test of time. Mm -hmm. but. So I describe them as pillars of liberty because that's a phrase Washington and the founders used a lot. And I think the, the word liberty is, is, is worth unpacking just a little bit to understand um, why Washington was focused on these core themes. We use the words independence and freedom and liberty essentially as interchangeable today. But I think to the founders, there were crucial differences and distinctions. The founders, and particularly Washington, who was always focused on responsibility, the responsibility that comes with freedom, he understood, they understood, that freedom could be a state of nature. But liberty required responsibility. That self-government was a job for a citizen that they needed to be invested in, that citizens needed to be invested in the success of a democratic republic for it to function. And so that idea of pillars of liberty, these were things that were holding up the edifice of our democratic republic. Washington, as I point out, pointed out these core dangers. And they were really rooted in their understanding of ancient and Greek and Roman history. And they were referred to in the constitutional debates and in the Federalist Papers. You know, when Washington's warning about the dangers of hyperpartisanship, or what would be called, you know, the founders would have called faction, that's, I mean, Madison's obsessed with addressing this in the Federalist Papers, um, because he talks about how ancient Greek republics were torn apart by faction. Um, and, 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 and Washington, you know, in particular really understands that 
that when these self-interested factions hijack a democracy, and, and also, by the way, the English Civil War is very much within living memory of the Founding Fathers, and that, that frame doesn't always get the credit it deserves in terms of impacting their thinking. And the writings of Joseph Addison to George Washington in particular. It's a fascinating figure. Wrote his favorite play, Cato. Um, Washington understood that basically that these factions could hijack democracy, that it would create a very deadlocked legislature um, that would create such frustration on the part of average citizens at the inefficiency and effectiveness of democracy that it could open the door to a demagogue with authoritarian ambitions. Washington and the founders were acutely aware of that pattern in human history, and they wanted to counteract it as best they could. They could do it institutionally to some extent, but they also needed to lead by the strength of their example and by setting forth clear wisdom. Excessive debt was also a major danger, something that I think is more associated with the conservative side of the aisle as, as a focus, although uh, when, when you know, our conservative friends sometimes take control of the legislature, they seem to forget it when it comes to actually passing a, a bill on such measures. But that Washington and Hamilton, here's where Hamilton's effort crucially is, is involved, um, understood that debt was a force that could topple empires. It always had. And, um, and therefore, and, and Washington and Hamilton experienced that danger, especially during the revolution, because the Continental Congress couldn't summon the political will to raise money to pay for soldiers, not just their pay, but bullets, shoes, basic stuff. And the British tried to use inflation as a weapon to devalue local currency. So Washington and Robert Morris, local who was uh, ultimately imprisoned in a very poignant story I write about. Washington visited him in prison, but he was really the genius of the American finance system as much as Alexander Hamilton. Um, Washington really grew to understand the importance of a degree of debt in seed funding a society, but that excessive debt could topple an empire in part because it violated the precept of generational responsibility. You should pay your own debts and not pass them on to the next generation. And, and finally, foreign wars and foreign entanglements. If folks know the farewell address today, they probably know the phrase entangling alliances, which doesn't appear in the farewell address. That phrase appears in Jefferson's first inaugural, which basically re-articulates Washington's farewell advice after Jefferson has basically spent his domestic political career fighting Washington over policy and philosophy. He becomes a born-again Washingtonian once he becomes president. But you know, when when you know, keep in mind that Washington, as a young soldier, gets involved in the first skirmish that starts not only the French and Indian Wars we call it in America, but the Seven Years' War in Europe. So the dangers of, of these sort of interconnected fates are very clear to him. And one of the great blessings of the United States is the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And he's constantly saying, don't throw in with these foreign powers. We will become a proxy, we will become a satellite, they don't actually care about our national interest and they never will. So he's guarding against that. Will Rogers, by the way, had a great line about that. He said, you know, uh, no nation ever had a better friend than, than ours. You know, you know who the two best friends of America had us? The Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. And that's something that we forget, but it really was a buffer. Um, the other thing he was aware of out of bitter experience was the tendency of foreign nations to try to meddle in the domestic affairs and elections of our own. And this, too, was something that the ancient Greeks and Romans had warned about. Right? Vladimir Putin didn't make this up on his own, folks. Um, you know, in, in the Federalist Papers, they refer to the way that King Philip of Macedon tried to influence, sort of cozy up to the Greek city-states and, you know, give them foreign donations and then buy off a couple of politicians and sow seeds of discords and then make the state so weakened and divided that he could easily conquer it. Even during Washington's own time, 
Poland, in, in mimicry and admiring mimicry of us, creates the first constitutional monarchy. Um, but the Russians end up buying off members of parliament um, and, and, and basically get to uh, Poland to disastrously agree to a series of partitions that reduce it to a skeletal state between Russia and Prussia until it is easily sort of absorbed. So, and that's a contemporary example that Washington's contending with. But most viciously, it's France. France sends an ambassador named Citizen Genet, the revolutionary government, to foment rebellion against the administration to try to convince uh, Washington and his administration to back away from the pro proclamation of neutrality that Washington issues in the latest war between France and England. And Jefferson and Madison are all in on the French side. There are riots in the street. John Jay is burned in effigy. There are riots in the streets right around the Constitution Center outside the executive mansion. John Adams actually calls for guns and weaponry to be brought to his house. Um, because these folks are being fomented by the French, They're, the country is inflamed, the birth of the partisan system is partly based around allegiance to the French Revolution because Washington's proclamation of neutrality is seen as a complete traitorous move against the French who supported us and is being seen as de facto pro-British. And of course, Hamilton was accused of trying to mimic the British economic system, et cetera, et cetera. What Washington understood that they didn't is that we needed to walk a middle line between monarchy and the mob, that we couldn't throw in with the British, and that Hamilton also understood, and Washington did with the Whiskey Rebellion, that anarchy was also the quickest path to tyranny. And so he's really furious when he writes the farewell address about the attempt of the French to undermine the integrity of our system and his government. And that seemed like a distant concern when I wrote the book. But of course, it's ripped out of the headlines today. And then I'll just say you know, that while Washington focused on warnings, he was too much a man of action to simply point out problems. So he pointed out very clearly in these pillars of liberty sources of strength that we should always focus on going forward. National unity, right? It's obvious now. Part of the danger of hyperpartisanship, he warned, was regional-based political parties that could lead to civil war. And he called those folks who would try to divide us as Americans in political debates, pretended patriots. Remember that. He talks about the importance of political moderation as a source of strength in a democracy, not weakness, not a mushy middle, but in fact a great tradition that's rooted in classical wisdom taken from the ancient Greeks and Romans. We've forgotten that as well, that political moderation is a source of strength in democracy as the founding fathers understood it. He talked about the importance of paying down debts fiscal responsibility, that you know, taxes are always going to be unpopular, but you need to pay them because it's immoral to pass off debts to another generation, but that some debt could be a good thing for a society. He talked about the importance of religion and morality to a self-governing people. This is you know, the part that Reagan always loved to use to quote, and I think it illustrates the way that the disparate messages of the farewell address resonate with different communities and can still unify us, but that while Washington was not an orthodox believer in Christianity, he took grief from a local preacher for not taking communion and kneeling during prayer. But he really understood the importance of religious pluralism and religious tolerance and religion in undergirding a self-governing society. It was very utilitarian. Religion was a great way of communicating morality and getting people to be ethical citizens. Education. Washington was the least educated founding father, and because of that, he was the most focused on education on a national level. He wanted to build a national university in Washington where the vice president's house now stands. He actually donated money to that. He was so focused on it that Hamilton kept trying to take it out of the farewell dress, and Washington kept putting it back. Hamilton ultimately said, look, 
save most of your verbiage of that for your farewell address to Congress. So right now there's only one line, but it's fascinating. And, and, and Washington's point is that enlightened opinion is necessary to a self-governing society. The reason he wanted a national university also was to try to bridge the divides between states, to create a common culture and common character. Um, and, and civic education, which this organization is devoted to, is something that we need to take much more seriously as a country. Um, and finally, the importance of a foreign policy of independence. Washington's advice on foreign policy has been mischaracterized throughout the ages as endorsement of isolationism. It's not. What he was focused on was a period of at least 20 years where we could build an economic and military strength so that we could be respected as an independent nation on the world stage and pursue our own interests and not confuse our own interests with that of another nation. So all these pillars of liberty that Washington focuses on, national unity, which he always, by the way, talks about citizens of birth or choice, which is a beautiful phrase we should remember. Um, all these pillars are things that were intended for us to repair to, for us to focus on going forward. Um, and, and, and they can unite us across our disparate political tribes still today. Um, and, and it's just one of the fascinating gifts at the heart of this address. Well, there's so many of those. I mean, all the pillars, of course, still resonate with us. Um, I want to come back to them in a moment. Sure. But several uh, questions from the audience touch on something that's absent from the pillars, and that's any mention of slavery. Yep. So what do we make of that? Well, look, I mean, obviously slavery is the original sin in our society and in the Constitution. Um, as you'll appreciate, you know, the, the, even the constitutional debates, the founders basically kicked the can. They basically said, this is too contentious. We're not going to be able to get a constitution if we deal with this issue. Washington's relationship with slavery is, of course, notoriously complex. And this is actually the subject of when I interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda for the book, who's the playwright in, of the play Hamilton. Um, we talked at length about this because it's, it's understandable, but I think dangerous uh, to view the founders solely through our contemporary lens. Um, and and, and Lin-Manuel Miranda's point was, we need to embrace the contradiction, that this is a man who speaks beautifully about freedom, who owned other human beings. You need to confront that contradiction. You can't ignore it. But then you need to transcend it. That's the sand in the oyster, he said. Um, and I do think that, you know, while, while Washington sidesteps the question of slavery, because remember, here too, he's still trying to forestall the, the, the Civil War. And the founders understood, Washington in particular, that the fault lines of the North and South and slavery were the most likely lines for Civil War. Washington, as president, is a fascinating um, example, a conversation he has with Attorney General Randolph, where he says, if there's a Civil War, I'm going to go in with the North. He feels captive to its cruel economy in a way that seems sort of wanly ironic today. But he understands it's a problem, um, not only for the country, but for himself. And, um, and it, what's fascinating is, is that the coda to the farewell address is his last will and testament. And that's a point I make in the book a great deal. I think Washington's last will and testament needs to be understood as the coda to his farewell address. He releases his slaves upon his death and his wife Martha's death. Many of them he inherited, most of them he inherited from his wife Martha and her first husband. Now you can easily argue that's too little too late. 
But it's worth remembering, first of all, that he's consciously trying to send a message to the nation about the direction we need to move and the side of this debate he's truly on. That nine subsequent presidents owned slaves and bought slaves when they were in office and didn't release them at their death or at the end of their life. Washington did. It was against the grain. And he was clearly sending a message. And again, it's understandable for folks to say it's too little too late. But he was writing for posterity even up until that last moment. And so I think he does deal with it belatedly outside the immediate text of the farewell. Well, we've already started about uh, talking about something that, of course, you, that's a big focus in your book, and that is the afterlife of uh, Washington's farewell address. I want to touch on different aspects of that afterlife. Um, it's no great surprise that every generation is going to want Washington on their side. Yeah. Uh, also to harken back to yeah. Manuel Miranda. Um, but I want to see how the farewell address has fared, in a sense, through history. Uh, for example, during the Civil War, what difference, uh, how do people make, what do they make of it during the Civil War? Yeah, th this is fascinating to me, too, um, in particular, because, again, the farewell address is almost a rumor to many of us today. I mean, the play Hamilton is the first time it's gotten a real shout-out in a long time. You got to understand the centrality it has, right? I said it was more widely reprinted than the Declaration of Independence, and its number of reprints spiked during times of national crisis, particularly Washington's death, but then during the War of 1812. Now, in the run-up to Civil War, the farewell address is bandied about because Washington, in it, warns us against secession, warns us against disunity. Andrew Jackson's entire farewell address is basically a rumination on Washington's wisdom in the farewell address saying that when Washington wrote that, we didn't know the Constitution would work. We know it does now. Don't be seduced by the claims of secession, which were being advanced by people such as his former Vice President, John C. Calhoun. Um, Daniel Webster and other folks are, are arguing both sides of it. Abraham Lincoln uses a riff in the farewell address as part of his core 1860 stump speech, justifying or defending the, the newly formed Republican Party against attacks. That's not a regional party, that's a national party. And that, you know, that this is a party of progress, which I think is sometimes lost. Um, and then during the Civil War, the Confederates try to claim Washington as one of their own too, right? You know, they say that, you know, Washington was a Southerner and a plantation owner and a slave owner and a rebel. Ergo, he's one of us, when of course Washington's entire political life after the Revolution was focusing on national unity. Um, there's a debate um, in the run-up to the Civil War II about whether they sh the farewell address should be bought. Because they, you know, John David uh, Claypool finally kicks the can and his executors put it up uh, for sale. And Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederacy, then Mississippi senator, says, this is a really waste of federal dollars. And of course, what he's trying to do is denigrate the message of the farewell. Um, and so one of the reasons it's in the New York Public Library is it's bought by a private entity because Congress was dissuaded from buying it because it was seen as profligate at the time. Um, after the Civil War, sorry, during the Civil War, Washington has it read aloud to troops to remind them for what they're fighting for. And after the Civil War, it becomes part of standard curriculum in American schools as a way of binding the nation's wounds. And there's amazing literature. There are all these contests that occur in the late 19th century, which I've, I've got examples of in the book, where you know, students would commit it to memory. They would win awards for oratory. This is a 6,000-word address, folks. And they're memorizing this in school. 
And this was a standard part of the curriculum, though. And, and, and the explicit point was is that maybe if we'd remembered the wisdom of Washington's warning, we wouldn't have had the Civil War. That's the idea. And, and it is a mainstay of debate right up and through World War I. And, and, and that's sort of the key pivotal moment. And, and what's fascinating is you've got a great debate around America's involvement in World War I and the World League of Nations conducted by two Washington biographers, Woodrow Wilson and Henry Cabot Lodge. Henry Cabot Lodge is the head of the Republicans in the Senate. Woodrow Wilson, of course, is, is, the, is the Democratic president. They are debating whether we should get involved in our first overseas war, which is a total violation of everything Washington says. And what Wilson tries to do is basically says, well, you know, the, the, the wisdom of Washington's warning needs to be updated, even if it's not totally outdated. That it's really about expanding freedom and securing freedom, and we should be in that business as well. We need to be a good friend on the world stage, um, and, and, and it makes that case. <clears throat> Henry Cabot Lodge is, is arguing more sort of, you know, we have never done ourselves a disservice by following Washington's wisdom and be very careful of ditching tradition, a classic true conservative perspective. Um, after the war, it's about joining the League of Nations. Obviously, Wilson wins that debate, by the way. Um, and uh, and after, the, you know, after the war, which the worst does not occur, America gets in and it's a relatively quick win. Then it's the question of the League of Nations. And uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and co. win that debate, again, invoking Washington's farewell. We don't pass the League of Nations because its articles were seen as entangling, committing us to a potential war. But at that moment, Washington starts to seem... Uh, less infallible, because we had violated one of the clear precepts, and the end did not come. In fact, America seemed to be rising on the world stage. And even though there's a fascinating period after World War I where there's great doubts about why we got involved in the war, and there's these Senate, you know, Senate commissions like the Nye Commission looking at you know, who compelled us and was it in our real national interest, um, the farewell address, and Washington himself starts to take a, a ding. The Gettysburg Address rises in prominence as a civic scripture. And the farewell address starts to fall out of favor. It's a fade. One of the most surreal moments that I think in the book um, surrounds the rise of a group uh, called America First, which was a group of folks who, informed by World War I, brandished the legacy of Washington and the farewell, saying that we should not get involved in World War II. And this is the late 1930s and 1940. This is. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, uh, a pretty wide group of folks uh, basically saying that that's not our fight. And they use the farewell address as an argument for why we shouldn't get involved in, in the foreign war. And some of them are clearly motivated by anti-Semitism. Uh, other folks just by saying that World War I was actually a mistake, let's not squander our advantage on the world stage. And this is where the farewell address starts to get a hit of being synonymous with isolationism, which it never did. But there's a surreal, dark moment that I think is, is fascinating that just to discover it itself was kind of stunning. In February 1939, there's a rally of the German-American Bund at Madison Square Garden. And it's 20,000 American Nazis show up. And it's ostensibly about ethnic pride, but there's a 30-foot banner of George Washington flanked by swastikas. And the keynote speech is all about recasting and reappropriating the farewell address. 
saying that Washington warned us against excessive debt and the New Deal has been too free spending. He warned us that we should focus on religion as the mainstay of our national identity. And he warned us against foreign entanglements and being involved in foreign wars. Now, what's fascinating about this odious misappropriation, in addition to it, just look, the, the photos look like an outtake from Dark Mirror or the Twilight Zone, is that, of course, Washington warned against these, exactly these kinds of pretend patriots who would manipulate his wisdom and the founding wisdom and argue that dividing the country was representing the founders' vision for the country when nothing could be further from the truth. And in particular, the dangers of a foreign government trying to influence our own elections and our own internal decisions. And the German-American Bund was eventually exposed as being taking money from Adolf Hitler, and many of those folks were, were thrown in the pokey. But, you know, Washington's farewell really takes a hit between World War I and that association with isolationists and anti-Semites. And it, it, it unfairly, it starts to fall out of favor. It's briefly revived during the Vietnam War when Gary Wills and other folks make a very high-minded argument for why involvement in Vietnam does not, is not consistent with the Founding Fathers' vision for America, while Nixon and co. were saying it did. It pops up occasionally. Reagan loves quoting it about religion. Johnson loves quoting it for education. But it's got this fascinating history, and it was so central to American debates. And then it faded away. But that doesn't mean its wisdom is any less applicable. It's just a fascinating guide to how historical memory can ebb and flow. And these civic scriptures really retain their wisdom, and we shouldn't accept that they're diminished by time. We should update them for ourselves. A couple of the questions from the audience also ask about the parallel between Washington's farewell address and Eisenhower. Yeah. And you talk about this in the book. Could you talk briefly about how, it, how Eisenhower himself is influenced by it? I, I really was a Washingtonian, right? I mean, he was a reluctant politician. He thought of himself as an independent. He really ultimately threw in with the Republican Party in part because he felt that you know, one party rule, the Democrats had ruled since 1932 and it was 1952, was bad for democracy. He was constantly at war with conservatives in his own party and thought about running for re-election as an independent. When his time for farewell dress comes by, um, and I found some memos that hadn't been published before from a speechwriter saying, you should really go back and look at the farewell dress again. And he focuses deeply on it. And his warning is to the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the military-industrial complex, although originally it was the congressional military-industrial complex. And then he was persuaded that maybe he was going to be alienating more people than he could attract that he needed to influence. Um, but the entire speech and much of Eisenhower's career is focused on these same pillars of wisdom, the virtue of moderation. Eisenhower was deeply focused on that. The importance of avoiding excessive debt, that sense of generational responsibility, that distrust of hyperpartisanship, the focus on national unity, uh, the focus on civic education, uh, and then identifying a new emerging threat that couldn't have been on Washington's radar. And that was his great gift. But the speech itself and much of Eisenhower's political career is based firmly on the foundation of Washington and Washington's farewell. John, our time is growing a little bit short here, but I, and there's so many other things I want to touch on. Um, one thing I'm sort of curious about um, is whether or not, given our technological advancements, um, we could even have something like the farewell address today. Could we have some, or is it, is it unique to Washington himself? 
uh, or uh, and, and that special sure. opportunity is kind of lost or no longer possible. Look, obviously, you're dealing with a, a set of uniques, a precedent without precedent in a time when there wasn't the fragmentation of our media and environment and that everything Washington did had outside impact and he knew it. So no, of course, a presidential address, any kind of uh, message is not gonna stand out in the same way. It's not gonna have the same historical gravity. But what I think we can do is, is to first of all recognize that we have those first principles articulated by the founding fathers. That they're not simply dusty old relics, but it's our responsibility as new generations of Americans to dust them off and to make the old stories new again. Because those principles don't age. Principles are not rigid requirements. They're gonna have different degrees of applicability at different times in our history. Washington couldn't have foreseen the growth of technology that would shrink the distance of the ocean or would give rise to the military industrial complex. But as we've seen, certainly his warnings about the dangers of hyperpartisanship, foreign powers trying to influence our domestic debates and elections, and the dangers of excessive de deficits and debt remain and retain their applicability. And I think that's what we really need to focus on because Washington is beyond partisan debates and because politics is the thing we have, the perspective is the thing we have least of in our politics. I think refocusing on Washington and the other founding fathers is especially important for us right now because it can recenter our debates. It can provide a sense of common ground and common purpose where very little is evident and that liberals and conservatives can find different bits of wisdom that comfort their own political faith and other places that can challenge it. And I think ultimately, you know, we're living in a challenging time. This is a civic stress test. And more citizens recognizing, as Washington did, that we the people are the backstop in a democracy. There ultimately, there is no president, by design of our system, who can be expected to come save us. That we've got a balanced system, we've got checks and balances and balanced power, but ultimately it's about we the people really guarding that gift that's been given to us from the founding fathers. And taking that responsibility seriously and understanding that I think it's probably time for a new generation of Washingtonians to try to transcend the political divides, to focus on first principles in an inclusive way along these foundational lines. Because this speech, we don't need a new farewell. We can focus on the original wisdom and then update it for a new generation. We can do that amazing thing Washington did, consciously trying to bridge the past, the present, and the future. That's our responsibility as well. And we have this amazing Rosetta Stone from the first founding father. And its applicability is still relevant. It is timeless, but it is timely. And I would argue urgently timely. So this is a great time to rediscover the farewell dress. And I think for a new generation of Washingtonians to rise up and to try to recenter our politics, to try to refocus on civic foundations and then move the country forward again, not left or right, but forward again. Um, and, and that balance, the eternal wisdom of individual liberty and generational responsibility can really help focus our debates in a constructive way going forward. So we don't need a new farewell. I think we need to rediscover it and move it forward again.
I know, I know better than to try and do better than that. Um, <laughs> but I do want to remind you that John will be downstairs uh, talking further about this wonderful book. Um, and there's no greater place to be talking about civic education, constitutional history, and to have a guest of such enormous quality and erudition. Thank you for being Thank with us, John. Thank you very much. It's Thank an you. honor to be here. Thank you. Today's show was edited by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR and sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. It's our email roundup of Constitution news and debate. It features all of our great constitutional content, and I hope you'll enjoy it. You can get it at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And finally, We the People listeners, this is important. We've talked to you. We've conducted a recent survey about your feedback on the podcast, which has been great. But it turns out that most of you are not members of the National Constitution Center. And I want that to change. I need you to become members of the Constitution Center, both to support our inspiring work but even more important than your financial support is a signal of your engagement and commitment to our inspiring nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. I want you to go to the Constitution Center website, constitutioncenter.org, and sign up to become a member at any level. You can give $5 or 50 or more, but you're a regular listener of We the People. I want you to signal that commitment and your commitment to lifelong learning by joining the National Constitution Center. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.